welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Detroit has a long history of food insecurity in the city's black neighborhoods. One year after 1967's rebellion, Focus Hope, an organization that was created in response to the unrest of that year, administered a consumer survey to explore if low-income shoppers pay more for their groceries than suburbanites. Results of that study revealed that not only did the poor pay more for groceries, but that they pay more for poorer quality food. Reporter Brittany Hudson looked into what has changed and what hasn't in the 50 years since the survey was done. Her upcoming story is going to air next week as part of WDET's partnership with the Feet in Two Worlds Fellowship, which is part of WDET's Detroit Storymakers Initiative aimed at empowering local storytellers to bring Detroit stories to life. Brittany, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, without giving away everything from your story, start by talking about what you found when you looked at the role of food insecurity in the rebellion of 1967. Without giving too much away, (laughs) uh, what I found is that even though um, some things have changed since then, a lot has not changed since then. Uh, Most importantly, the issues of food insecurity food inequality and food insecurity in the city of Detroit. Uh, and one of the, this is actually an issue that uh, I come into contact with an awful lot with a project that uh, I started in the neighborhood where I was born near uh, Livernois and Grand River in the home that my family lived in when, when, when I was born. Uh, and, and as we have sort of got going with that project and gotten to know our neighbors uh, pretty well, you know, it is it is the issue in neighborhoods like that, a neighborhood that's kind of forgotten, has experienced a lot of disinvestment and uh, and certainly a lot of abandonment. But it, it's a really complicated issue. It is not as sort of um, uh, either or, I think, as a lot of people want to believe it is. It's not that people always have enough food or never have enough food. There's some fluidity there. People move back and cross, back and forth across that spectrum. Uh, and that makes it uh, more pernicious, in my opinion, uh, but also makes it harder to, to deal with. Exactly. Um, everything you just said, hits, you hit it on the head. Um, speaking with one of the sources in my story, Raphael Wright, you know, he explained exactly what you just said. And even in doing the reporting of this story, it's not black and white. It was very complex. There's a lot of layers to this problem. And, you know, there was so much. So it was really hard to condense within, you know, five to seven minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you talked with Wayne State adjunct professor Alex Hill, who focuses on how food and power and race all played a role in the rebellion. And here's what he had to say about where we are now. Since 1968, there has been a considerable uh, change in the grocery industry. Um, So we see some fairly significant differences um, in the types of stores, the types of chains. Um, For a while, the city of Detroit, you know, had its own kind of mini chain stores across the city. And now we're just seeing chain store, national chain stores come back. So he's talking there about the, the, the dearth of grocery stores here in the in the city. When you look at the current food landscape, what do you, do you find? Are there a decent amount of grocery stores throughout the city? So what I found in doing my research for the story is that 
uh, from the 2017 Detroit Food uh, Metric Report that there are 74 full-line grocery stores in the city. So seeing that number alone may make someone think, okay, that's not horrible. But when you think about the circumference of the city and how it has to service, um, these grocery stores have to service the entire city, that's really actually a bleak outlook. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not very many. And and mm-hmm. adding to that problem, I think, is what's available at right. a lot of those Grocery stores. There are places that call themselves grocery stores, and they are that, but they don't have a lot of fresh food, exactly. uh, for instance. Uh, they don't have a lot of the things, the necessities that people count on to be able to, you know, walk up to the corner to get. So it's not just the number, it's the type and the condition, I think, of a lot of those stores. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, another source in my story, uh, Ms. Sonia Green, who is working with uh, Mr. Raphael Wright to open a bodega in the Linwood neighborhood. She even recalled, you know, growing up and, you know, going to grocery stores where even the quality of food was so terrible where she could smell a bad stench of meat, like, as soon as you walk in through the door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, back in uh, in your reporting, did you find that prices at these smaller places made Detroiters more or less likely to shop within their communities? Uh, pricing was one aspect of it. Um, in talking with Alex Hill, he mentioned that pricing compared to 1968 is, um, there's not a discrepancy like there was in 1968 that today pricing is similar, but when you add in the opportunity cost of limited income, Mm -hmm. um, time and discriminatory customer service, that plays into how Detroiters have created this sort of food ways to from the city to the suburbs yeah yeah uh, in your piece as you mentioned you talk with Raphael Wright who's a man who is half of a duo that's working to bring a bodega with fresh food options to the Linwood neighborhood on the city's west side let's hear what he had to say about his own experiences growing up in Detroit I was raised in the 90s and I always say that we were junk food babies that we only we ate our full courses out of liquor stores, gas stations many times. In short, I'm a victim of food insecurity. Um, I'm 30 years old. Uh, I was diagnosed with diabetes at 19. So before I was old enough to have a drink, I was diabetic. Wow. Uh, he's talking there about growing up in the city. Uh, he called himself a junk food uh, baby. Talk about how common that experience is among Detroiters of his generation growing up 30, 40 years after the 1967 uprising. Right. I think, um, you know, there are a lot of stories similar to Raphael Wright. And it's showing up today because I've, you know, in conversations with other entrepreneurs in the city, they are creating, um, you know, establishing food businesses where they want to combat, you know, uh, childhood obesity and, you know, issues like children having diabetes, like as you heard Raphael Wright himself has. So it's definitely an issue. And like I said, one that, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and healthy advocates are really trying to address. Mm. Um, in your piece, you say that none of the 74 full-line grocery stores in Detroit are African-American owned. Mm. I think that's really interesting. Uh, mm. What impact does that have, do you think, on a city that is, of course, uh, very, very predominantly African-American? Right. I, th- I think that's the uh, that's very ironic. Right. In a 
majority African-American city that you have no black owned grocery stores. And I think for entrepreneurs like Raphael, right, that is really a driving motivator is that why can't I see someone like myself that owns a business that, you know, is not like a Whole Foods, a, a corporation. It's someone that looks like me. I know it's someone that cares about me. It's someone who's familiar with the community or at least has the best interests of the community at heart. Hmm. And he also mentioned that in the story, how representation is important for him. Yeah. You, you know, I, one of the things I think of uh, when I think about food insecurity and the possible solutions uh, to it is the difficulty at coming up with uh, with solutions at scale, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is such a local issue. Uh, in the neighborhood where I was born over at, uh, at Grand River and Livernois, it's really hard to get people to move to, to, to get to a- any place that's beyond just a few blocks uh, to be able to get uh, to food, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we're going to fix that problem there, I feel like we have to fix it in the neighborhood. And I think that's pretty common uh, across neighborhoods like that in the city. But that kind of confounds uh, efforts like food pantries, which tend to try to serve larger larger swaths of the city, for instance. I mean, in a way, we have kind of a mismatch going on there, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like you said, this is not an, an easy problem to solve and with all the complexities involved, um, it, it's really going to take, you know, a, a collective effort mm-hmm. to address these issues. And like I said, there are a number, just in my reporting and experience talking with folks in the community, um, there are a lot of people who are interested in addressing this. So, you know, you have your social entrepreneurs like Raphael Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an, I know of another young lady who's trying to start a mobile grocery store. And then you have a organization like the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, who, you know, is also trying to open a black owned co-op on the North end, I believe of yeah. Detroit. So um, yeah, like I said, to your point, it's definitely a collective effort. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Brittany Hudson, we will look forward to your story next week here on WDET. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more Detroit Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. You know, through most of American history, the narrative around land cultivation or farming and African Americans is one of exploitation and oppression. Our next guest is devoted to changing that by offering up an alternative, which is presented in her book, Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. Dr. Monica White, a Detroit native, writes that post-agricultural society of the Jim Crow South left many black Southerners homeless, unemployed, and hungry in the same way that post-industrial societies of the northern United States have left many black factory workers homeless, unemployed, and hungry. What does that mean for people here in Detroit? And how are African-American communities here and around the country reclaiming agriculture as a space and place to practice freedom. 
I'm joined now by Dr. Monica White. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and welcome home to uh, Detroit. <laughs> it's always great to have native Detroiters back here. Yes, always to talk good to about be home. their lives and their work. Um, uh, so I want to start with the the quote that I just read mm-hmm. uh, from the book, and it reminds me of of. A theme, I guess, that I've been turning over in my mind for a little bit, and it may turn into a project at some point. Who knows? Okay. Uh, but I, I think part of what you're talking about here is an epilogue to the story of the Great Migration. This idea that African Americans left the South in large, large, large numbers, uh, mostly the late 19th century, early mm-hmm. 20th century for opportunity, uh, for a better life in the North. Sure. They found that life in some ways uh, for a, a period of time. But certainly in the last 50 years, what we've seen is the deterioration of that life. And mm-hmm. in some cases, right here in the city of Detroit, for instance, I think you can argue that what they're left with is not much different or better than what they or their ancestors left behind in the South? Mm -hmm. Well, I would argue that um, we didn't necessarily leave the South because of the work. It was because we were tired of the exploitation. It's the the exploitation, right? right. And so this question of black labor, what happens when we're needed for agriculture? We're organized and galvanized in the South. What happens when we no longer needed as labor? Then we were invited to and, and, and encouraged to come to the North in the, the um, in Detroit and other places. And now that there's this redesign of the automobile industry, now what happens to black labor? And so my argument really is, how do we as black community folks um, res, re, um, respond to res, uh, these conditions using strategies of agriculture? Because we see in these economic conditions, these downtimes, that we've turned to agriculture as an opportunity to rebuild our communities, and today is no different. Hmm. Uh, talk about what inspired you to look into this history. Sure. So I'm, uh, my parents um, m- moved here. Um, they migrated from the south, and my dad always grew food, always had a, a garden. Um, my grandmother had a container garden uh, right on Stimson and uh, Woodward, and so wanted to really articulate the work of black folks in, in growing food from a frame that's different than sharecropping, tenant farming, and slavery. And so as a part of that conversation and a part of what was happening in Detroit in early 2000s, mid 2000s, um, 20, yeah. So uh, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, I was introduced to Baba Malik Yakini Mm -hmm. and was really um, captivated by the commitment to growing food as a strategy of building community, but also organizing and creating sustainability um, and increasing access to nutrient-rich food. And so looking at Detroit, you can't talk about agriculture and start in Detroit. You have to follow where we came from. And so following those lines, I went to the South and then just really wanted to understand how food has been a strategy for um, resistance and resilience since the end of slavery to um, to today. Talk about the role that slavery plays in these common narratives around African-Americans and agriculture. So to me, what was really fascinating was the fact that we carried seeds in our hair. So the the slogan is with seeds in our hair, we migrate, we were brought here Mm -hmm. um, uh, as labor. And so that bringing rice was a part of the cultural connection that 
allowed us to grow up the food that we had been accustomed to, but it was also the demand for provision grounds and um, slave gardens. Um, the produce that we grew, we then shared in a market. And so that Sunday market was almost a free space in mm. some ways that during the, you know, during slavery, we would then gather together and celebrate break bread and what have you. And so I feel like there's this trajectory of food as a strategy historically for black folks and growing food production is also an important component that I think is often overlooked. And as the negative frame is often what we elevate opposed to the ways that food has allows, allowed us to be resilient and to build and to t- provide for ourselves. This question of self-provisioning is something that is extremely important. Uh, Reverend Wendell Paris says you can free yourself when you can feed yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that to me was the story that I wanted to capture historically and offer as a lens to understand the work that we're doing today. It's an interesting duality, really, if, if you think about it. I mean, there is this this awful history of exploitation and, and oppression around food uh, and and labor, as you as you point out, and and it has also served as as you point out a means to to to, to agency, mm-hmm, right? To, mm-hmm. to to control mm-hmm. for ourselves how things how things look. Uh, when you think about Detroit right now mm-hmm. and cities like Detroit. Mm-hmm. Do you feel as though the agency part of that has the upper hand? Uh, are we mm-hmm. are we at a place where that's the the dominant side of the story? For me, it will always be the dominant side of the story. Mm-hmm. So what happens to you is only one part. But what you make a de- when you make a decision to bring about a change, social, economically, and politically, that to me will always be the story. So there are going to be some political decisions, some economic decisions that. Um, tend to make us feel like we're losing the battle. But it is when people come together and recognize the collective force and the collective power of our work, our efforts, and our voices, that to me should be the story that we elevate and use as an example of what can happen when we pull our resources together. My guest is Dr. Monica White. She's an assistant professor of environmental justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also author of Freedom Farmers, uh, Agricultural Resistance, and the Black Freedom Movement. She's also a Detroit native. She is speaking tonight as part of the Three Dope Sisters lecture series presented by the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. That is taking place from 6 to 9 p.m. at Vanguard Community Development Corporation at uh, 2795 East Grand Boulevard. If you want to join the conversation here, Tell us, are you engaged with a community garden or agricultural group in your community? Do you grow your own food in your yard? What has this taught you about self-sufficiency and resilience, a word that we use all the time here in the city of Detroit? Uh, Do you feel like it has empowered you in other aspects of your life, growing your own food? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. White, before we get to callers, I, I want to talk to you about terms and terminology. Sure. Uh, food justice is a term we use a lot. Your title at the University of Wisconsin is environmental justice is in that, is, is, is in that title. I would love to have you try to define what those terms mean. What would they look like if we had food justice, mm-hmm. if we had environmental justice? How would we how would we recognize those things? So I think what's interesting is to recognize the social components that 
um, demonstrate the diet-related illnesses and a lack of access of nutrient-rich food. So part we can argue that African Americans do suffer from environmental racism, and some would argue and uh, violence in terms of the re- access to um, the various kinds of food resources that we have uh, prominent in our communities. And so for me, the justice component is taking something that was intended to be used or that has manifested itself in ways that are violent and um, uh, uh, destructive and uh, exploitive and, pr- and oppressive, but using that as an instrument to organize, to mobilize, galvanize, and to lead toward freedom. So it could be food justice, it can be economic justice, it can be um, environmental justice, but it is looking at the collective strength of a community to stand up and to speak in response to the conditions and to organize and mobilize on its own behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get to the phones here. We got a lot of folks who oh, want to wow. participate in this conversation. <laughs> let's go to Jacqueline in Detroit. Jacqueline, welcome to Detroit today. Hello. Thank you. Good morning. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Go ahead. So uh, I'm a Wayne State Doctor of Nursing Practice student. I graduate in July, and I just wrapped up my CNP project looking at how food insecurity impacts health outcomes um, in the Detroit community. And and uh, what are you seeing uh, as as somebody who's studying this issue here in the city? There's two major problems: um, healthcare providers as a whole do not really screen for food insecurity. And then the other issue is when we do screen and get a positive screen, um, there's difficulties in where you refer those patients and community resources in which you can refer them to to improve their access to food as well as the health outcomes that affect it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jacqueline, I really appreciate the call and the and the comments. Uh, Dr. White, this, this goes right to the heart of, I guess, what you're talking about, this idea that we have agency and the ability to address this issue ourselves and that that's not just uh, imperative now, but that has been part of our history from the beginning. Sure. So so I don't want to make it seem as though there's not a structural responsibility to making sure that folks have access to nutrient-rich food. So on the one hand, I love the conversation of resilience, but I do think that we have to push back against the conditions that leave certain communities more vulnerable than others, Mm -hmm. right? So I do think that there's a medical response to um, food access, food insecurity, and what have you. Jack Geiger, um, really historic um, physician, did incredible work in Mississippi where he was um, active in making sure that folks had that, that he was a, one of the leading um, members of the Community Health Project, where they talked about the importance of um, making sure that folks had access to food. And they even mentioned that they had more uh, prescriptions for healthy food than they did for medications at that time. And this mm-hmm. is in the late 60s. So there is a medical response and medical responsibility that is necessary. But in addition to, uh, you know, we, I think that we can talk about, we can ask the question, is access to nutrient-rich food a human right? If it is a human right, then whose responsibility is it? And while everybody's sort of deciding whose responsibility it is, we see beautiful communities and incredible uh, inertia and, and organizing in ways to make sure that we, while we all are discussing what's happening, that our babies go to school with full bellies of nutrient-rich food that allow them to learn and to do, and, and, and in addition to concern for our seniors, the two most vulnerable communities that we have. It's a, it's a really big part of community in most places as well. I, I have some familiarity with this, with the neighborhood where I was born near uh, Livernois and Grand River, uh, where I operate a nonprofit in the house where my family lived. Uh, it's a literary arts and community center, but 
it's also uh, deeply rooted in what the issues are yeah. for people in that neighborhood. And food insecurity is, you know, top of the list sure. for us in terms of what we see all the time with our with our neighbors. Uh, there is something about uh, addressing that that problem together, mm -hmm. which is what we've just started to think about how to do. Um, that that builds community. I mean, yeah. there's no question that yeah. it becomes a stronger place because you're talking about how to make sure that everybody on the block has enough food all the time. You're sure. talking about uh, how to increase access right. to healthy food and fresh food. And you're talking about how uh, everybody can have their own sort of piece of it. Everyone uh, is not just necessarily taking from the food access, but contributing to it, right? sure. helping to helping to build it. Sure, sure. So I'm a sociologist. I'm always fascinated by what does food allow us to do? Food is the language of love. It is the language of concern. It is the language. Of, I mean, you know, we can use food as a language and it does so many things and it can bring communities together. And once we're together breaking bread, we can think about collective uh, problem solving. And it, you know, it allows us to recognize and to connect in ways that are deeper than we would if we hadn't broken bread. And I just think that food does so many things for us that it's also um, a strategy of resistance and resilience as we think about what we want the future of Detroit to look like. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, we're talking about food security and insecurity here in the city of Detroit. Uh, tell us what your experiences have been with that, with the idea of maybe growing your own food. Are you doing that here in the city? Tell us what it has taught you about self-sufficiency. Tell us what it has taught you about empowerment in other aspects of your life. Uh, let's go to Linda in Detroit. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh -huh. um, I asked about, 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 about the food situation here in Detroit. Uh -huh. I, think that I, 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 I think that the mayor don't want, don't want black people to, to, to live here in Detroit. He want to move us all out in the suburbs. Well, what do you think about that? Uh, I'm sorry. That that who wants who wants to move people out? Are you still there, Linda? Yes, I am. Uh, I I I I I think that the mayor. The mayor. Uh, yeah, the mayor don't want us here. Yeah. So so uh, what he want to do is move us out in the suburbs. Okay, Linda, I, I, I really appreciate the call and the comments, Linda. Dr. White, do you want to respond? Sure. To that? So Mrs. Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer, talked about using food as a strategy to dispossess black folks in Mississippi. And so if food was used as a strategy of oppression and exploitation, Mrs. Hamer then decided to organize Freedom Farm Agricultural Cooperative, which was a way to keep people in the South. So her argument was when you leave the South, you, everything comes from the land mm -hmm. and leaving the land leaves you dependent upon someone else for everything. And so her belief was, and she was known to say, as long as I have a pig in a garden, no one can tell me what to do. So this idea of food as an instrument of oppression, food as an instrument of resistance and resilience, then I think that there's a lot that can happen when people come together and establish places for us to eat, break bread, and to collectively come up with ideas and strategies for how do we have whole, happy, full lives that were thriving and not just surviving. Yeah. I mean, uh, to, to Linda's point about the changes that are happening yeah. in this city, in neighborhoods, yeah. in, in places where 
Detroiters, black Detroiters for so long were just trying to hang on as everyone else left, as money was sort of pulled back, disinvestment set in and, and abandonment. Um, you know, now you've got uh, renewed attention in, in some of right. those places. And uh, there's no question that it feels to a lot of people as though this is this is about changing the city's demographics. It, it is about mm. making it a white space rather than a black space. And uh, f- food plays a role yes. in, in those questions. Yes. I mean, I am every time I come home, I am shocked by how much has happened. And while the narrative is there's a new Detroit and the D- Detroit is, is doing better, then I wonder better for whom. And so I recognize that there are efforts like the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and Feedem Freedom and other organizations that are really active in making sure that the voices of black Detroiters, and I say generational black Detroiters, because we have been here for generations, <laughs> and it seems like uh, it seems like an assault to not have our narratives recognize our voices heard and our stories documented. Yeah. You know, and, and again, there's a duality at work Absolutely. there. This idea that um, we need people to, we need more people to invest in the city. We need more money uh, to do the things that we need to do. At the same time, in neighborhoods like the one where I grew up, that's not happening right. in the same way that it is in places that are quote unquote more desirable uh, and and sort of bridging that gap is one of the real challenges and race of course drives yes. a, an awful lot yep. of those discussions it does and it's painful to see that you know those moneyed interests and political interests are not engaging respectfully in community voices. And that is what I would like to see happen. Yeah, uh, Linda, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Bernadette in Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? I am thinking about not only nutritional food acquisition, but beyond that, the next step is cooking. Um, when there was white flight from the schools, um, cooking lessons changed. Um, parents who are single parents and are teenagers don't know how to cook, so they can't impart that to their children. Mm. Um, I thought that I would address that. Mm. Bernadette, I appreciate uh, the call and the comments. Dr. Dr. White, uh, what's your response? Yeah, thank you, Bernadetta. I do think that the conversation in question about cooking is an important one, but I do think that it gets overshadowed, right? I, I think that when we talk about the importance of, of you know, of, of, of cooking, we often fail to sort of acknowledge the, the, the demands of employment. Um, how do we, you know, raising children and so on and so forth. So I think that it often seems as though we're using cooking as a, a way to blame families for not providing for their children without really interrogating the structural factors that make difficult um, accessing food, certain kinds of foods, um, culturally appropriate foods, affordable foods, you know, nutrition, n- nutrient rich. And we, we just sort of say, OK, well, all you, have, all you need to do is cook without recognizing all that it takes in order to cook. I think that's a structural analysis that needs a further um, yeah. elaboration. In the in the previous segment, we were talking about the, the, the presence of grocery stores here in the city, the number of grocery stores, the quality of those stores. But, but we were also talking about the ownership sure. of those stores and the fact that none of the groceries in the yeah. city are black-owned. That, to me, seems as though it, it has got to be a driver of some of these problems. At the same time, 
uh, as you talk about, um, you know, the D- Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, for instance, mm-hmm. I-, I feel like uh, African Americans are doing what they can, yeah. right, to yeah. address this issue. Right. But we probably do need uh, uh, that to progress to the point where we've got Black-owned yes. groceries yes. in neighborhoods, yes. right? Yes, And so my response to that is, on the one hand, we can talk and think about Black-owned establishments. I do think that we can also think about collective and cooperative owned establishments, right? So an independent individual family to start a grocery store, there's a lot of, um, you know, inputs and all kinds of investments that need to be, you know, provided. In both cases, I think you, you do have to have a lot of, of, of capital and in, uh, in ve- engagement. But I think that the cooperative historically has really offered us an economic example of what does it look like when folks who don't have independently a lot of resources, but collectively do, um, you know, what does that look like and how does that change the landscape? So absolutely, I'm in support of the Detroit People's Food Co-op and the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, and you don't have to be black to support. But if you do want to make sure that there's representation of a variety of range of out um, sources and, and options, I do think that thinking about investing and supporting those goals would be a wonderful way to do so. Mm-hmm. Again, thanks for the call uh, and the comments there. Let's go to Alberta in Detroit. Alberta, welcome to Detroit Good today. Good morning. Good hey. morning. What a ray of sunshine you are, Dr. White. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> you, Thank you, Thank <laughs> you. That's very nice of you. I, I won't even look at what my schedule is tonight. I will be there to meet you at the place. Oh, I look forward to it. That, I'm going to call other warriors, people that I know who perhaps are not listening right now, like Catherine Lynch. Oh, yes, like, yes, yes. Who last name? Yes. So Catherine, you, know, you got to know that. Of course, of course. <laughs> my sister for real. <laughs> yes, truly doing a tremendous work. And we have to salute Brother Malik Yakini. That's right, that's right. Yes. My God, what he's doing over there and and, sh- and spreading the word That's right. of, of our health being our wealth. Mm. And I'm just so grateful. And, you know, I also want to uh, thank places like Gleaners and Forgotten Harvest, yes. who re- who make certain, to the best of their ability, right. that they distribute food in places where it's needed. That's right. That's true. But self-sufficiency is the bottom line. And we, I think, what an opportunity we have here in Detroit. Yes. I've always said, people look at the homes that have been torn down, mm-hmm. and I, I, my quote has always been, don't call that a vacant lot. That's not a vacant lot. That's an opportunity. <laughs> and mm-hmm. land does not give birth to itself. All you see is all we're ever going to have. Right. If this same land that we have in Detroit was in Bloomfield or Gross Point, it would be known as Rolling Hills or an estate. <laughs> so attitude is important, and yeah. what you call things is important. Right. I'm not going to treat it like a vacant lot. I'm going to educate the children of the value of the land. Right. And I'm just so grateful to have you on this show this morning. <laughs> Thank you. I Thank can't you, wait Ms. to Alberta. meet you. I look forward to uh, meeting Alberta, you. Alberta, I really appreciate the Thank call uh, and the insights there. Dr. White, uh, I, go I, ahead. Yes, I wanted to say, um, I, I, while we recognize an, the important role that emergency food providers offer, a just food system means that they're no longer needed. And so recognizing that in this transition, right, that my optimism, um, that there's an opportunity for emergency food providers to do 
and you know they are doing wonderful work you know with with earthworks urban you know farm i mean just so many projects but really looking at this food work and seeing that uh, emergency food providers can utilize or can allow access to the commercial spaces for urban ag projects to do value added pro- i mean you know, products so when the kitchens aren't being used or you know when the refrigerated cars are not being used that there's so many ways that we can f- more fully integrate emergency food providers into a just food system. And I'm hoping that we are able to sort of move toward that and think creatively about how do we respond to these food Mm. conditions. Yeah, yeah. Alberta, again, thanks very much for the call. And I'm sure Dr. White really appreciates all the praise you heaped on her there. That was very (laughs) sweet. Uh, Let's go to Jean in Oakland County. Jean, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, Steve. Hi, how are you? I know if you saw this uh, story in the raw story, it's reporting that African-American farmers were purposely sold inferior seeds in Memphis, Tennessee in March of 2017 hmm. in an effort to uh, steal their land, basically. Right. So yeah, to, to make sure. I thought we might want to look into, um, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like, gosh, seems like the cards are definitely stacked against um you know, some people, and that's, hmm. that's a shame. I also hmm. wanted to suggest that uh, when you get time, check out the documentary, The Grass is Greener. That's another um, one that I've watched in regards to reparations and racism that I think, um, you know, might help us move in a really nice, positive direction. And in the meantime, I'd just like to note that, yeah, I have a lot of edible um, plants, perennials in my um in my yard, I love to be able to eat my yard. I mean, I go around, I have berries, raspberries. That's a great phrase, Gene. It's, it's a great thing. So <laughs> I, I think the more food we grow, well, then you know what's in it. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks very much for the call. Uh, Dr. White, this, this idea of forcible sure. uh, sort of food insecurity, it, it, historically that's one of the things that African-Americans have always faced. But as Jean points out, it's not all in history. There's a there is a very painful history of land dispossession for Black folk, right? Um, and if we look at the numbers, there's approximately 1.4 percent of all farmers are African American and struggling. And so the story of Stein Seed Company came out, and those seeds had been tested to be infertile. They could not produce. And so there is a, you know, there are crises happening today where African-Americans are being dispossessed of their land for a variety of reasons. And uh, Pete Daniel tells the story of the role of the USDA in land dispossession. And these are all conversations that are important for us to have. If the nation was built on the backs of blacks, on the land stolen by, from indigenous communities, then we do owe, we owe, we have an obligation to pay those bills. Mm. You know, uh, I had a conversation with one of my neighbors in the neighborhood uh, where I was born a couple of years ago. This is somebody who really desperately wanted us to do better with our own food supply and 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 uh, building gardens and and thinking about how we could address food insecurity. And he said to me, he said, you know, the kids in this neighborhood don't know that food comes out of the ground. They don't have any concept of that because Mm -hmm. uh, there is no food coming out of the ground here, right? And the stores that are near us don't have fresh food that comes out of the ground. And it just, that, 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 that statement has stuck with me so strongly over the, over the years. It's hard to overstate the, the depths of the insufficiency here, the, the things that we do not have in neighborhoods that are, predominantly African-American. 
And there's another side to that. I think that's also important to elevate. There are organizations like the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network that have Food Warriors Youth Development Programs. I, I don't know of an Urban Act project that doesn't appeal to children. The kids, and so yeah. if we recognize how important it is for kids to be involved in these projects, we have to make sure that we support those organizations that are providing these resources and opportunities to children. Mm. And so you don't have to come up with a new project. There's so many projects that are going on in the city that would love to have children come out and, you know, and you can see there is a fundamental shift in how children are outside of the garden space and in the garden space. It's really a tremendous view and vision. I did a vermicomposting workshop for D-Town when I don't like worms. And I had this lecture <laughs> prepared and I was all, and the children, I popped the top on the compost bin. The children, you know, ran to the bin. There goes my lecture. They're doing a worm dance. They're naming worms. I mean, just to see the brightness in their eyes sure. and to have them involved in the project, in these projects and talking to the children in, you know, engaging in this kind of way, I think is tremendous. And it's an opportunity that's happening probably right around the corner. It's amazing what you see when you're at adult level mm -hmm. versus when you're at child We're level. At child you're closer level. to the ground. You can see the garden spaces. Just take some time today to recognize and appreciate all the places that we grow in a city like Detroit that is often it's often overlooked. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Monica White, Assistant Professor of Environmental Justice at the University of Wisconsin, also the author of Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. Uh, she will be speaking tonight as part of the Three Dope Sisters Lecture Series presented by the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. That is from 6 to 9 p.m. at Vanguard Community Development Corporation at 2795 East Grand Boulevard. Dr. White, it was really great to have you. This here was fun. Us. Thank you so yeah. much. I enjoyed yeah. it myself. All right. Up next, we're going to sit down with Dan Carmody, the president of Eastern Market Corporation, to talk about the role that uh, organization plays in providing fresh food here in the city of Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. The first sheds were built at the site of Eastern Market in 1891. Think of how long ago that was. But even today, in 2019, every Saturday, thousands of Metro Detroiters and city residents Head to that site for fresh produce, a growing number of locally prepared foods, food trucks, and the hustle and bustle that has become synonymous with the iconic locale. And the person who is at the helm of that corporation is our next guest, Dan Carmody. He is the president of Eastern Market Corporation. Dan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Mr. Henderson, how are you today? It is always really great to catch up with you. I'm glad you're here. Um, let's let's start with your reaction to the conversations that uh, we had earlier here on the show about food insecurity here in the city of Detroit. I know that at the at Eastern Market, you guys are really focused on the idea that fresh food should be available to everybody uh, across the city. I like the term nutrient dense food. Oh, I like that. Because um, I think one of, the, one of the mistakes we make in the good food movement is too much reliance on fresh and not enough on other forms of nutrient-dense food, such as IQF frozen food where no additives are uh, 
done to pre- preserving food without preservatives mm. in forms that sometimes are more convenient than fresh food. So my argument is that, and this is global data, and everybody is affected by this, people know increasingly that our diet is not good for our health, and they want to eat healthier, right? but they don't want to get, d- dedicate any more time to doing that. <laughs> right. So convenience <laughs> and health are both... They're joined at the waist. You've got to you got to do both. both. Yeah, that's a really it is a really interesting point. Well, my eye opener for us was helping sponsor a company move uh, their headquarters from Traverse City to Detroit called Michigan Farm to Freezer. So they they freeze Michigan stone fruit crops up in the northwest part of the state. Down here, they do cauliflower and broccoli and asparagus and root crops. Excellent product. It basically gives people the chance to eat locally year round. And if anyone's like me, I can't you know. July, August, September, October, Michigan harvest. I go to Eastern Market. I see this beautiful fresh produce. I buy so much that my it's just the two of us at the house now. Mm-hmm. All that nutrient value ends up in my fresher drawer, not in my stomach. Wow. <laughs> and so I, I would be much better off buying frozen product in the middle of the growing season, right. which I won't do. Right. <laughs> but, but what Michigan Farm to Freezer has done, and they've created 10 jobs in less than a year, uh, doing small batch freezing to help our farmers out that come to our wholesale market. But this winter, their sales exploded when they, they changed their marketing strategy a little bit. And most of their growth has been in, quite frankly, higher-end suburban stores. But they got those stores to put their branded chest freezers in the produce department during the wintertime, not in the frozen food section. Mm, yeah. and, and that really made all the difference in the world. So all I'm suggesting is that regardless of income, we have to address convenience and um, nutrient density together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a growing number of organic farms that are growing their food right here in the city and selling their produce at the market. Talk about how those local growers are adding to the market and how they're benefiting with a major outlet to sell their fruits and vegetables. Well, you know, uh, let's keep in mind urban agriculture in Detroit is not a new thing. Right. It goes back to 1893, the first silver, the first of three really bad economic times in Detroit's recent history, the Silver Panic Depression. Mm-hmm. And the mayor and, decides that uh, we're going to create potato farms, right? Well, uh, that was the city council's derisive uh, critique of his idea to plant vegetables because he was Irish. So they, <laughs> they derided in them, call them pingree potato patches. Potato, uh, right. And the idea was, you know, that's an interesting time in history because it's the first time that the public dole, you know, um, was, was it was a progressive idea and it debuted at that time. And Pingree was criticized, you know, locally for having this outlandish idea that people that actually should plant gardens in their backyard to get through tough times. And then every city in the Midwest, which let's remember that cities in the Midwest in that era were the comp- comparable to Chinese or Indian cities of today. They were the fastest growing places mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And they all copied pingree potato patch. Right, ideas. right. So anyway, Coleman Young, Farm A Lot. And then the birth of sort of the more modern movement with uh, Detroit Ag Network in the early aughts. There's 1,600 gardens that are going to be, you know, urban farms in the city of Detroit just through the Detroit uh, Ag Network and Keep Growing Detroit's fine work to supply them with uh, the supplies and tools and knowledge they need to uh, to grow food. So, yeah, um, for about the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, the larger g- growers underneath, uh, they have their co-op called Grown in Detroit, which shows up at Eastern Market. That's usually 50 or 60 um, excess producers of what they need for their themselves and their family and their friends in the neighborhood. And then uh, there's probably eight 
that have graduated from that to their own stand at the market. And then over the last year or two years, we've debuted a program we call Mighty Micros, where we give people, starter farmers, an incentive rate in a smaller space than a full stall. In 2017, we added five new growers, and last year we added seven new growers. So they're, they're coming. They're still, you know, the majority of the producers at Eastern Market are those medium-sized farms typically on the outskirts of the urban area. Uh, downriver, upper Macomb County, you know, 50 to 150 acres. That's sort of the the backbone of local food production. Mm. But small producers, uh, you know, it's a pretty interesting question when you talk about the financial sustainability of small producers. Have you checked the financial sustainability of mega large producers lately? Mm. American agriculture is really in a bad time right now yeah. Yeah. Uh, because prices are low and the decimation of the export markets by various sort of the collateral damage of trade wars. And so we have financial sustainability issues across the scale. Uh, one of the things we're interested in at Eastern Market and have been for some time is trying to figure out models where we can do value-added crops where there's specialized production. Uh, doesn't have to be at the market, but it, the market has a lot more food production activity than anywhere else in the city. Mm. Centralized production and sales and, and marketing with dispersed production. And we finally had the full-scale model come to life just this last week with the opening for the first time in 60 years of Detroit's first uh, winery, Detroit Vineyards. Yeah. Now, yeah. They're, pretty, they're in their third year of making wines. They're dedicated to Michigan grapes. They've been buying grapes from southwest and northwest Michigan, making some pretty good wines. And that's not my opinion. More importantly, it's my wife's opinion. I'll, <laughs> I'll drink just about anything, but she has more of an educated She's a little more power. refined uh, that's right. taste. <laughs> she says it's good, so it must be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the idea we explored with them when it came to town is they actually wanted to build a winery uh, before the state took over uh, management of Belle Isle. Their, their vision was to have a winery and a 50-acre vineyard on Be- Belle Isle, that. which yeah. actually, I guess the back to the French days, that was not a that was a – it's deemed as some of the best grape growing microclimate in the in the upper Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we kinda counseled them and said, you know, rather than thinking about one one fifty acre vineyard, why don't you think about fifty one acre vineyards? Like around the city? Just scattered yeah. where people have interest in learning how to grow something different than maybe heirloom tomatoes. Ooh. Wow. Wow. And so they're up to five now already. Uh, and we're trying to give them, give them some funding to kind of put that on steroids and see if we can't get to 50 sooner rather yeah. than later. Because yeah. maybe, you know, growing grapes may not be the most value-added product, uh, you know, but every other wine-growing region in the world, people start by growing grapes, and then they figure out, you know, making wine isn't that difficult. We could, <laughs> we could do that. Yeah. And so that's how that's how we think whether it's, whether it's you know, cut flowers is another uh, area we think there's – Tremendous opportunity. Why on earth we're buying most of our cut flowers that are produced or distributed through Holland makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah. And so, okay, Dan Carmody, president of Eastern Market Corporation. It is always great to have you here with us on Good Detroit to talk, today. Man. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. You're going to want to tune in, and we are going to talk with the author of a book that explores the human stories behind the landmark Supreme Court case Plessy versus Ferguson, which enshrined separate but equal under American law. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I'll talk with you again tomorrow. <laughs>